The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to the Spectator Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Lee, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the writer and critic and biographer Francis Wilson, whose new book is called Burning Man, The Ascent of D.H. Lawrence. Francis, welcome. Now, D.H. Lawrence, I remember you saying to me not very long ago, words to the effect of, oh, I'm going to have to hide under a kind of duvet-style... <laughs> defensive bombardment for the critics. You seem to have a sense that you're going to catch hell for writing this book. Why Why do you have that? Is it because Lawrence is a bit out of fashion? A bit out of fashion, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, Lawrence has been out of fashion for my whole life. I mean, Lawrence has been out of fashion, I'd say, since 1970, since Kate Millett wrote Sexual Politics, which was a, the book that cancelled Lawrence. Having uh, Lawrence had been the kind of the icon of the counterculture throughout the 60s, after Lady Chatterley's Lover Trial in 1960, kind of made him seem like, you know, the man who invented sexual intercourse. And then by the end of the decade, Kate Millett, who was an American postgraduate student, published her thesis in which she, she kind of outed Lawrence along with Henry Miller and Norman May as um, fellow-centric misogynists. And uh, Miller and Naylor survived. You know, they were a bit bloodied, but they survived. But Lawrence was just snuffed out like a candle. And since then, it's not that... He, I mean, he was, he was cancelled avant la lettre, but he wasn't cancelled as an evil man. He was cancelled as a fool. I mean, people think that Lawrence is a bit embarrassing now. Well, that's, more, so that's that, more damaging in a way, isn't it? <laughs> it's much more damaging to be laughed at, sneered at. And so I, I always had to keep my, my admiration for Lawrence a secret, not because people would have thought that it was, you know, I was anti-feminist, which they did, but also because they thought I, was, I hadn't really got any literary taste. One of the points you make in the introduction is that, you know, the, the cancellation of Mailer and Henry Miller as these sort of you know, chauvinistic, misogynistic, phallocentric things, doesn't quite apply to Lawrence. I mean, you know, you said he's actually, his female characters are much deeper and more interesting and more complex than his male ones. Yeah. Yes, yeah. No, it doesn't apply to Lawrence. Um, if you look at Lawrence in all his dimensions, all his one million dimensions, I mean, what, what Kate Millett did was to cherry-pick her way through late Lawrence and choose a couple of instances where Lawrence was at his most appalling, where he was employing the worst cliché of a kind of, you know, macho men kind of silencing intelligent women. And it's not, you know, it's not Lawrence at his best. But there are so many different Lawrences. He had a different voice for every occasion. And I would say that Lawrence changed as he was dying. So he changed in the last... Kind of five years of his life. 
He died in 1930, so from kind of 1925 onwards. The weaker he got physically, the more he kind of, he invested in this fantasy of the strong man, and the stronger his incredibly promiscuous wife Frida got, the more he invested in the fantasy of being able to silence her. But early Lawrence was a completely different person. He was composed of opposites. So early Lawrence was a man who invested totally in the power, the terrifying power of women. And that was when, as Norman Mailer just beautifully put it, Lawrence was inhabiting the soul of a beautiful woman. So Lawrence, at that point in his life, was channeling his mother. And later in his life, he channeled his father. It sounds so crude to talk about someone's whole life being divided between either identifying with his mother or his father, but that's what Lawrence's life boiled down to. Now, this this many, many sides of Lawrence thing, I mean, one of the most interesting arguments of the book seems to me that we look for Lawrence's distinction in the wrong places. And I remember several months ago talking, I think, to your publicist every email, and I said, oh, Francis writing about Lawrence. I have to admit, I can't stick Lawrence's (laughs) novels, but I think his poetry is wonderful. And the publicist said, oh, yes, well... Funnily enough, you know, you need to talk to Francis about this. Yes, yes. Oh, gosh. F.R. Leavis didn't do Lawrence any favours at all when he decided... In fact, I think F.R. Leavis was as destructive to Lawrence's reputation as Kate Millett. So <laughs> in the his praise. He couldn't survive the praise. So um, Levis decided when he drew up his own canon of writers who um, wrote about life with a capital L. And Lawrence was at the centre of that, that only the novels mattered and only three of the eight novels mattered. And they were Sons and Lovers, Women in Love and The Rainbow. And so what Levis did was his book about Lawrence is called D.H. Lawrence, comma, Novelist. And so he therefore elided D.H. Lawrence, poet, D.H. Lawrence, essayist, D.H. Lawrence, short story writer, D.H. Lawrence, kind of memoirist, D.H. Lawrence, translator, D.H. Lawrence, psychoanalyst, D.H. Lawrence, literary critic. And so the, the Lawrence that people knew in his lifetime, where the next Lawrence book could have been anything, no one knew what's going to come out next. I mean, he, he only wrote eight novels. He wrote over a thousand poems and over 70 short stories. And volume after volume after volume of, of essays, the novels were marginal then. And what Levis did was put the novels at the centre of the Lawrence canon and everything else at the periphery. And what I have tried to do is change that, put the periphery back in the centre and talk about the novels as important because they were important to Lawrence and because they... They played an important part in our culture, especially what happened around Lady Chatterley, which actually I don't talk about because it's outside my time frame. But not to talk about novels as the absolute centre of his achievement. I think they're interesting. Sons and Lovers, I think, is a masterpiece. And otherwise, I think they're magnificently flawed. Yes, you, you pull out certainly one of the things that has always bugged me about the novels, though maybe it's of their time or maybe it's a symptom of novels written by a poet with a peculiar intensity, the repetitions. Yes. There's one of them where you say he talks about darkness. Yeah. Sort of 48 (laughs) times on two pages. And I remember St Moore, you know, there's somebody's high arched American eyebrows turn up three times in as many pages and you've got frenzy. The word frenzy appears throughout his career. 
Yes, well, Sam, you either love it or you hate it. You know, I <laughs> at one point he apologised for the repetitions. I think it was the beginning of one of the editions of Women in Love. He said the repetitions are there for a reason. You know, he's trying to, and I forget exactly what his reason was, but I remember thinking at the time, oh, he's aware of it then. It's not a fault in his style. No, I loathed the repetitions as well. Until I started to feel, especially with darkness repeated 48 times over two pages in Women in Love, when Birkin and Ursula are kind of on the first, the first lap of their kind of European tour. I found it very powerful and moving, actually, darker and darker and darker and darker. And each time you hear the word darkness, it seems to mean something else. But I can see that it comes across as terrifically affected. And, but I think everything Lawrence did was to irritate. And so maybe that was to irritate as well. Yes. What are the, what are the glories? Because you, you identify as the absolute pinnacle of Lawrence's literary achievement, a sort of few thousand word piece, his memoir of, <laughs> of Morris Magnus, that has been sort of out of print for 50 years. <laughs> I know. Now, I know that sounds eccentric, but the memoir of Morris Magnus is absolutely extraordinary. I felt electrified when I first read it. It's hard to find because it's kind of been buried in his in the collection called Phoenix, which only a kind of real kind of card carrying Laurentians have. But the memoir of Morris Magnus is almost impossible to describe. It's like all the best writing. It just doesn't fit into any genre. It was written to be an introduction to a book by this man, Morris Magnus himself, a memoir by Morris Magnus himself about escaping from the French Foreign Legion. And Morris Magnus was a chap that Lawrence knew for two years between 1919 and 1921 when Magnus committed suicide. And during those two years, Magnus was a fantastic pain in the arse to Lawrence. He borrowed, <laughs> he borrowed money off him continually in order to travel first class and eat, you know, in the best restaurants and stay in the best hotels when Lawrence and his wife were, had only one set of clothes and were living on nothing. And what was complicated about the relationship is that Lawrence went along with it. He always gave Magnus this money. Everywhere he went in Europe, Magnus turned up. So yeah. Lawrence is getting a boat to Malta and then suddenly Magnus is on the deck borrowing money. <laughs> Lawrence is, comes down in the morning to water his garden in Sicily and suddenly Magnus is standing in the garden. So, you know, he couldn't kind of couldn't open a window without Magnus crawling through. Well, he appears as the mosquito, doesn't he? I mean, <laughs> yes. I mean, what I suggest is that the animal poems that Lawrence wrote during this period are essentially about Magnus, like Bibbles, the dog that he beats, that he kicks, the kind of the, the dog who's running around trying with his tail wagging in a kind of love frenzy, trying to get everyone to be nice to him, is exactly like Lawrence. And, and the mosquito who sucks the blood out of Lawrence's neck in a, in a poor hotel in Syracuse is Magnus. And the snake who comes to drink in Lawrence's garden, who a Lawrence kind of throws, yeah. throws a wonderful poem and Lawrence throws a brick at him and then thinks oh no but I actually liked him is also a kind of an image of Magnus. But the relationship with Magnus is sort of fascinating I mean Magnus in himself is interesting because he's obviously you know extremely ill-suited to being a member of the Foreign Legion and extremely ill-suited <laughs> with his other vocation of being a monk. I know. 
I know. So Magnus is a very camp. He's gay and very camp with a very soft body. Lawrence is obsessed with the softness of his body and he describes him over and over again as looking like a tomtit. When Lawrence talks about Magnus, I think he's very, very funny. It's the only time you get Lawrence in pure comic mode. He's enormously amused by Magnus. I would never know that the memoir was by Lawrence if it was published anonymously. And so he, he's struck by the fact that Magnus doesn't fit into the world in any way at all. Magnus is an American expatriate who he meets in Florence, and he's on the run. Lawrence is also on the run, so I think there's a strong identification between Lawrence and Magnus. Lawrence is on the run from, from England, where the rainbow has been banned and burnt, and he's fallen out with his country, and Magnus has fallen out with almost everyone. And so they're both kind of flying around the world, not quite knowing where they're going. And Magnus is openly homosexual, and Lawrence is tackling homosexual feelings that he's trying to bury and so he's fascinated by a kind of bravery in Magnus and also by the bravery of Magnus kind of openly being a deserter from one of the the toughest toughest kind of military forces in the world. But you also say I mean that this is one of the few times in Lawrence's life where He's fascinated by another man, and the other man really doesn't take very much interest in him at all. It's the other way around. Maybe. I know, because everyone else who ever met Lawrence, within moments, had kind of written a memoir of him. You only had to meet Lawrence for half an hour to get a book out of him. But Magnus had absolutely no interest in Lawrence at all, except as a kind of someone he could bum a fiver off. <laughs> and it seemed as if it was Lawrence who was pursuing Magnus. And the culmination of their relationship was that Magnus took... Lawrence to the Abbey of Monte Cassino and Lawrence had an astonishing three days up there where he has a sort he has a series of epiphanies and a kind of breakdown in Monte Cassino where he's visiting Magnus whose other vocation as you said Sam was to be a priest and so and so when when he's up there in Monte Cassino with Magnus looking at all the views Lawrence has this urge to Go back in time. He says, I can't go forward into the future. I have to go back. The medieval life was the only life that means anything to me. And this is also what Magnus thinks. He doesn't belong in the 20th century. He doesn't belong in the future. He has to lead the life of a medieval monk in a medieval abbey. So they have this in common as well. And then Lawrence does what Lawrence always does whenever he has a huge insight he just bolts. And so he bolts, leaving Magnus behind, who then gets into even more financial trouble and who then starts to pursue Lawrence. So the relationship kind of shifts. Lawrence has been pursuing Magnus and then Magnus starts pursuing Lawrence. But what makes the the piece of writing so extraordinary, not only is the, the story, I think, very vividly told and very surprising and completely un but it's that Lawrence's treachery. And this memoir is an introduction to Magnus's own memoir, published after Magnus's suicide. And all Lawrence does in it is to slack Magnus off. And so it's a very unusual kind of... <laughs> it's not exactly a eulogy in any sense, but he, sla- he takes the piss of Magnus, he mocks Magnus, he talks about Magnus as a fantastic pain in the arse, but he's also clearly fascinated by Magnus. And then at the end of the memoir, he completely changes place. He says, no, Magnus was a little star, he was a hero. 
You know, what uh, the world needs more Magnuses. And so you get the full Lawrence kind of contradictions and oppositions and arguing every case. And you're left thinking, God, this tells us so much about Lawrence and so little about who Morris Magnus was. It's like Lawrence made up Morris Magnus. He's his best novelistic creation and the best male figure he ever drew because he wasn't good at men because he always did macho men. But when he does a kind of a very camp homosexual man, he nails him. Well, there is that question about Lawrence's sexuality. I mean, you... One way of reading your book would say, you know, that Lawrence is the greatest closet case in literary history. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think possibly he was. I mean, one of the things that really struck me, kind of immersing myself in Lawrence for the five years it took me to write the book, was how incredibly unimportant sex was to him. You know, this priest of love was really kind of sexually completely inactive, as far as I could see. His his wife was very sexually active, and he wrote about... He wrote about sexual women, really. He was absorbed in the sexuality of his wife. And every woman he met before he uh, married Frida, he kind of, he got inside her skin to explore what it was like to be her sexually. He didn't really have much to say about male sexuality at all. It was just this kind of, this, this stereotype. His attitude to homosexuality changed dramatically. The first time he was aware of it, was when he went to stay in Cambridge. He went to visit the philosophers in Cambridge. His first invitation to an Oxbridge College. And you can imagine, you know, this son of a collier with his working class Nottingham accent, kind of going to have dinner with Bertrand Russell at High Table in Trinity, and then being invited afterwards to go into a, into a Don's rooms and talk. And he was treated as a little pet, And then he suddenly becomes aware of Cambridge Bloomsbury homosexuality and he is absolutely horrified. He says he feels like he's going mad, there's worms crawling all over him. He flees Cambridge just like he fled. Well, there's this moment where he meets Keynes in his room, isn't (laughs) it? It's Keynes coming out of his bedroom and you never know what's happened. He says, and then Keynes came out of his bedroom and it was like, you think, yes, and what, was he naked? Naked, you know, or would he have his pyjamas on? Did he have a boner? What did you see? He doesn't say what he saw, just Kane's going out of his bedroom. And then Lawrence goes into a coma of anxiety and rushes home and goes to bed for a week. And then the next time he, you see him around the homosexuals is in Florence, where he's with Morris Magnus. And he seems to be quite relaxed then. Yeah in the company of gay men. So he's easing his way into this thing. Also, if you are, say, a closeted homosexual, you know, and and very reluctant, I mean, when he later has an affair with this Rosalind in Monte Cassini, you know, she's all up for jumping into bed with him and he's always, oh, well, I think let's wait for the next night. Um, You know, he's obviously not what, you know, he's very into the theory of, you know, having sex with ladies and not wild about the practice. So what on earth lands him with this ferociously sexual wife? I mean, is she, is she a sort of super beard? What's the... At the time, 
Lawrence was looking for someone who would have sex with him without what he called the dirty coin of marriage. Imagine what it was like being young and inquisitive as Lawrence was and wanting desperately to bring bodies into the novel. He felt quite rightly this is what the novel was lacking, but he had to get to know some bodies first. And all the women that Lawrence had become intimate with said, you know, you know of course I, I would sleep with you, but can we be engaged first? And Lawrence just felt, so Lawrence was engaged three times before Frida and he just couldn't, he just couldn't go through with it. He wanted a woman who was a muse. And what he found in Frida, I mean, she suited him in a couple of ways. One was that she was already married with kids. So it was a little bit like his mother. And so there was a nice kind of Oedipal thing there. She, she was older than him. And so he could respect that and she could teach him now teach him about sex she was also having a couple of affairs of her own already and she already was a sexual muse back in Germany where she was a sexual muse to this kind of bohemian crowd that she hung out with that she knew through her sister and so I think what Lawrence felt was that he could use Frida as material for writing and of course and what and Frida immediately changed the direction of his writing his first two novels were kind of Hardy-esque. And then after Frida, his writing became much more dangerously challenging and um, audacious. And so I think it wasn't that he wanted to have sex with Frida all day. He wanted to write about a woman who represented freedom. And of course, I think Frida was utterly humiliated him all the time. This is why Lawrence turned into the man he turned into, who's the man everyone associates with. Lawrence the misogynist. I mean, here was Lawrence, who was tubercular all his life, getting thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner, and I'm sure was eventually kind of impotent, and Frida getting fatter and fatter and fatter. And she, because Frida represented freedom and life itself, had sex with anyone who wanted to have sex with her, and most people did. And so even on their honeymoon, she had sex with a young man that they met up with on her honeymoon. And Lawrence couldn't say anything, couldn't be bourgeois about this because Frida was freedom. You know, she represented free love and he represented this as well and the body and everything, the body was everything. And so she represented Lawrence's ideology, but inside he was in knots. You've got a certain amount of time for Frida in the novel, I mean, sorry, in the book, and you say... Everyone who Lawrence knew basically hated Frida. They would all report on these you know, pot and pan flinging, hair pulling rows <laughs> that they had. But then you say, look, actually, they were performing marital disharmony and in private, there was a sort of intimacy and a connection. Yeah, I think we see this with a lot of couples, though, don't we? You know, they save their arguments for public, it's theatre, but in private they hold hands and <laughs> kiss each other on the ear. And I think Lawrence and Frieda were like this. No, I was, I'm sort of shocked really by, I mean, people talk about Lawrence as misogynist, but the misogyny around Frieda, that's really the question that interests me. Everyone was vile about Frieda who knew her, um, which is fine. I mean, they're completely entitled to know someone and not like them, particularly because they didn't like the way that she treated their friend Lawrence. But since then, you know, everyone who writes about Frida who didn't know her is vile about her as well. And I think it's kind of, it's important to, you know, try and see what, the only thing that matters really to us is what Frida meant to Lawrence. 
And it doesn't matter what Frida meant to anyone else. And Frida meant everything to Lawrence. I mean, he couldn't... When People noted that when Frida left the room, Lawrence looked completely at sea. When Frida came into the room, he seemed anchored again. He believed deeply in the whole... Well, his whole philosophy was based on the, um, the Blakeian line, opposition is true friendship. He needed Frida to be his opposite in order to feel moored in his life at all. And Frida was body and he was mind. He did have to hang around with a lot of people who could be quite tedious, couldn't they? I mean, I was the, the description of the relationship with H.D., who saw oh, everything as a kind of yeah. symbol. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I, God, I did find H. Did you think that HD was a bore? Well, I mean, on the evidence, certainly, of your account of it, I mean, there's a lovely bit where you say that Lawrence sort of gave his blessing to HD to go and have an affair. He said, you know, go and stay in this place with yeah. Grey, I think it was. You say HD said this was obviously a sign of some divine ordaining of, <laughs> you know, whatever it was. And you kind of add in a footnote... Lawrence was perpetually asking people to go and stay in this place to cover the rent while he was away. <laughs> I know. Well, Lawrence really met his match in HED because Lawrence, Lawrence thought in symbols. He lived a life of allegory. He thought in symbols. And I don't mean that, you know, I don't, I'm not saying that in an offhand way. I mean, Lawrence was someone who actually gave himself a symbol. He gave himself the symbol of a phoenix and let everyone know that this was his symbol. I mean, who does that? This is how powerfully he thought in symbols. And then he meets H.D., who also thinks in symbols. And of course, Lawrence only liked being with his opposite. And so the thought, you know, being with H.D., who was determined to kind of see her life as mythology as well. And she represented Greek myth and Lawrence represented something pagan. And they were kind of, all their symbols would meld into one. Lawrence, I mean, she bored Lawrence. And her seriousness... The earnestness with which she read her relationship with Lawrence is kind of written in the runes. Yeah. I think. I mean, it's very, very interesting, I think, how seriously she took her relationship with Lawrence. And when HD then went to have psychoanalysis with Freud, she talked about Lawrence. She said that Freud looked like Lawrence. Freud told her to write her memoir about Lawrence. As per usual, HD meant absolutely nothing to Lawrence. She meant everything to him. But that idea about you know, being terrifically earnest and serious and labelling symbols is is the sort of, on the face of it, one of the charges against Lawrence. But you say he was capable of being funny. I mean, the thing that he was an extraordinary mimic. He was an extraordinary mimic. And I accept that mimicry doesn't mean that you've got a good sense of humour. It actually is a little bit evil. And what people said about Lawrence was that his capacity to impersonate was frightening. And people laughed, but they didn't laugh with mirth. They laughed with a kind of hysterical terror. I mean, he could impersonate every animal. What I love so much about Maurice Magnus is that he catches Magnus's voice so perfectly. And uh, people said that in kind of after-dinner charades, Lawrence is a great charades player, his impersonations kind of had people just gasping. They said he was possessed. People, creatures, he, when, when he was in this jungle in Ceylon and he was terrified by the, the night screeches he heard in the jungle, he, used to go, <laughs> he impersonated them during his after-dinner charades back in 
Burke Hampstead, you know, and people said they felt as if he was there. And I do, you know, I can see that this doesn't mean he's a great comic writer, but it does mean that there's, there is another dimension to Lawrence. He didn't just live in his own self entirely. Yeah. He could absorb other people's selves terrifically fast. You say that that, in the book, that, that capacity of mimicry you thought also had to do with his class position. Yes, well, this is what David Garnett said. David Garnett, the son of Edward Garnett, who was the person who originally kind of discovered Lawrence and tried to kind of shape him as a writer. David Garnett said he thought that all people from the lower classes were good at impersonating people from the higher classes because their anger came out. It allowed expression of their anger. David Garnett also said something about Lawrence that is so important. And I don't think biographers have taken this nearly seriously enough. He said that Lawrence, amongst the literati, the London literati, was like a mongrel hanging around with Pomeranians. He said he looked like the plumber's mate. You know, he got a kind of, he got a vulgar nose and he had his vulgar accent and he was never, ever, ever going to fit in. And you imagine what Edwardian snobbery was like. Yeah. So the people that Lawrence was having to kind of have dinner with had never spoken in their lives to someone who was working class. They only ever met working class people as servants and they wouldn't speak to them, let alone as equals. And so Lawrence had to fight against walls of snobbery and patronage that he loathed. Do you think he did have a sense of (laughs) humour? Well, you know, I'd like to say yes, but um, I don't think it was a sense of humour as good as yours or mine, but I think he had his own kind of humour. He wrote half of a very, what would have been a very good comic novel called Mr Noon. This is the one about his marriage? Yes. Had he finished Mr Noon, we'd have had a completely different version of Lawrence. It's very, very funny. It's kind of, it's a light-hearted take on meeting Frida. I mean, he wrote a lot about meeting Frida and sometimes he wrote tragically about it. But on this occasion, he wrote something very light and amusing about it where he cast himself as a comic character. I mean, I think that's where kind of Lawrence's humour does come most to the fore that he didn't just send up other people he really sent up himself as someone really working it in a drawing room and trying to be liked and trying to please and failing and this is how he describes himself in Mr Noon. You talk very a little bit about Lawrence's you know his early influences this sort of absolute you know starstruck adoration of Shelley the sort of Blake you know Whitman these kind of quite obvious emphasis but you say and it's a pretty bold claim that Lawrence actively structured his life as you have your biography around Dante's divine comedy I mean you say it it was a primal plan it was a kind of figure in the carpet and that he he kind of consciously put it in isn't that a bit of a bold yeah, I wouldn't... Uh, yes. I mean, it's bold. It's bold. And it came... It start, this started off as, for me, a bit of a joke, actually. I thought, it is interesting, isn't it, the way in which Lawrence's life began in the underworld, with his father being a collier, and, his, and he used the word inferno about his father's life over and over and over again. And he described the First World War as an inferno, and he used... Dante-esque imagery all the time. And it's interesting that he ended his life 8,000 feet up in the Rocky Mountains. And if you map Lawrence's life, as I did, I mean, I went around the world 
kind of pursuing Lawrence in a kind of method biography way. What became obvious to me, and you can't see this if you have a map on the table, is that his journey was one of ascent. He was climbing higher and higher and higher and higher. Now, there are reasons for this. I mean, all of his houses were on ledges, and I kid you not, all of his houses were on ledges. Every house was higher than the last. Now, one reason for this is because he was tubercular. Yeah. And he had, you know, this is, what, this is what consumptives had to do. They had to get higher and higher and higher to get the air. But he never admitted to being tubercular because it was, I mean, the stigma around it was like admitting to having AIDS. It was well, highly infectious. Well, they thought infectious. it was an internal, I mean, they didn't realise it was a disease, did they? It was thought it was think, sort of internal no, no. weakness. Yeah, and Lawrence also believed, because he had his own version of the body, he thought that it was because his, um, of the excess love his mother had given him had pressed his lungs so there was a lot, he'd have certainly been an anti-vaxxer now. He had a completely alternative version of the physical self. And so one reading, and it's very much a reading I hope I give, is that Lawrence was practically trying to live. That's why his life took this kind of sharp ascent. But also Lawrence thought symbolically. He lived a life of allegory. And so in his writing, he describes his journey entirely in terms of uh, the Divine Comedy. In his writing, the number of times he talks about moving from the inferno to purgatory and, the pur- and from purgatory to paradise, I just lost count. I just lost count. And no other biographer had seen this. They talked about Lawrence's mad running around the world as though it was mayhem. It didn't really have any logic. But I thought, my God, it did. It did have this very specific logic. At first, I thought, I need a device to structure this biography. I need a device to show that Lawrence thought symbolically and I need to write a book which gets inside his symbolic thinking. And so I need to, I can't just put him in a normal shaped cradle's grave biography. He needs a bespoke biography. And um, and so I'll structure it around his interest in ascent. And then the more I looked at it, the more I felt convinced that one of the models he was following, he also saw himself as Christ. You know, as he got thinner and thinner and thinner, he saw himself as kind of dying every, every Christmas. He was crucified at Christmas and he was reborn at Easter. And so I thought one of the models he very specifically follows is Dante. And he identified with divine comedy for lots of reasons, one of which is that Dante was both a poet and a semi-divine figure, which is what Lawrence thought he was as well. But also, Dante put all his friends in hell. I mean, Dante, when he wrote the Divine Comedy, said, OK, I'm getting revenge on you bastards. He was also an exile. And so he chucked everyone who'd ever done him a wrong into hell. And here was Lawrence, also in exile, who kind of, all of his friends ended up in his book. So I thought, there, you know, it, it struck me. I mean, I know reviewers have been sceptical about this. I say, no, I'm standing. I'm standing my ground here. It strikes me as this was very much a strain of his thinking. Yeah. In the process of the ascent, there's this funny zigzag, which is a classic Lawrence, you know, doing the opposite thing. He thinks, I've got to go to the New World, I've got to go to the States. He gets a letter inviting him, and he immediately sets off in the opposite direction, the salon, and then buggers off to Australia, and goes the back way round. Sam, that's because of his magnets. 
So his magnets were telling him Morris to go magnets. the opposite. Yeah, Morris magnet. That's right. Now, this is we're back here to Lawrence's sense of the body. Lawrence was a theosopher, theosophist. He believed that the body was composed of magnets, and that um, he believed that the body had an intelligence of its own, and that he had to follow his body's intelligence. And the um, the body was quite literally magnetic. I mean, electric forces running around the body, and the magnets were forcing him east and so when he talked so he talked about himself as kind of Balaam's ass you know he was going you know, he wanted to go one way but the ass was going the other way and I think he really believed this but a lot of theosophers did believe this is what Yeats believed as well and I at first you know I wanted to obviously have a good poke a good laugh at theosophy and then I thought actually I completely get it they wanted to have some some mystery back in the world. The world is becoming more and more rational, more and more kind of scientific and mechanical. And Lawrence wanted to get back to the kind of, um, to some kind of primitive understanding of the self, which was rapidly being destroyed. And did that sort of set him, as you see it, at odds with modernism, which is a sort of another reaction to, I guess, the demystification of the world. Yes, well, Lawrence was at odds with everything. And so, of course, he was at odds with modernism. So on the one hand, Lawrence believed passionately in the future of the novel and the future of poetry. And he was very experimental in his writing. He wrote wonderful things about free verse and wonderful things about what the novel should be doing, about how the novel should be redefining the self and redefining sexuality. But on the other hand, he believed that we were heading towards catastrophe in the future and that really we had to get back, not to Renaissance values, but to <laughs> which he thought were were corrupt because the Renaissance, in his view, had invented self-consciousness. The Renaissance artists had invented self-consciousness. We had to get back to medieval values, when to the values of Dante, essentially, where man was just a being moving unconsciously through the world, following his magnetic drives. And so he was a very, very unhappy modernist. I think a lot of modernists were unhappy modernists. So we think about modernists as kind of running to greet the future. And Lawrence kind of was, but he sort of wasn't, but everything in him was a conflict because he had magnets kind of pulling all the time. And those magnets finally took him to New Mexico. Was that paradise for him? Did he find a... I mean, he's certainly very dismayed to find a Native American you know, driving a car around the place rather than just sort of yes. <laughs> floating through the fields. Well, Lawrence having kind of banged on and on and on about looking for primitive man, finally meets a primitive man in New Mexico when he's invited by Mabel Dodge Luhan to the Society Hostess, who's kind of set up a sort of commune in Taos. She, um, she has a Native American lover. And as soon as Lawrence meets this man, he is absolutely paralysed with anxiety and can't bear him. He becomes allergic to him. And uh, you realise that he's kind of, he's now face to face with everything that he should believe in and he can't cope. I think Lawrence couldn't, like a lot of us, Lawrence couldn't cope with America. America was too big for him. He was able to write about America and I think the writing, the non-fiction writing he did in America, the essays Morning in, Mornings in Mexico and Studies in Classic American Literature are second to none. So his, his writing about the force of America, the 
fear of America, the kind of the courage and terror of America was sensational. But the novels he wrote in America and the short stories are terrible. <laughs> but wasn't the studies in classical American literature written before he'd ever been to America? Yes, he I wrote mean, it first. So he rewrote the whole book. He wrote yeah. it first when he was fantasising about America as his paradise. He wrote it when he was living in Cornwall during the war, during the First World War, when the rainbow had been destroyed. And he had to think about being something other than a novelist. And so um, he had a handful of American novels with him. These, he decided, would be his canon. So slightly odd canon. But the first version studies in classical American literature was I think just wonderful and that was entirely about America as this paradise this fresh untrodden earth this was the place he had to get to the place in which a new self could be born and then when he got there Within 10 days of arriving, he was so disillusioned by America, which he thought had been taken over by Hollywood and everything looked like a film version of itself, that he rewrote studies in classical American literature in an American accent, in a shouty voice. And this time he was anti-America. I think the two versions should be published alongside each other as Lawrence's self one and self two in conflict. That's the the perverse. There's also a sort of tragicomic coda to the whole thing. The business of Lawrence's ashes. Oh, God, yeah. It was so typical. that I mean, this had to happen to Lawrence, who was so obsessed with his body <laughs> and saw himself, you know, described himself always as this phoenix rising from its own ashes. So, of course, Lawrence's ashes had to have a drama of their own. So what happened was... So Lawrence died in France... And he was buried there. And Frida instantly went on her shagathon. She went back to Taos with her latest lover. And after five years, decided that Lawrence had to be brought back to Taos and be buried in a little memorial that she thought was like a, a temple to Isis in the Rocky Mountains. Now, everyone else thought it looked like a public lavatory. <laughs> but um, she was completely convinced this is where Lawrence had to be. So she sent her new husband back to France to pick up Lawrence's ashes, so which meant that he had to get Lawrence cremated first. And he, I think, was kind of ambivalent about doing this. So he got there, got Lawrence cremated, and then there are various versions of this, but this is what I think happened. This is what he says happened. He said he lost courage. He couldn't bring the ashes back because the red tape was overwhelming. This, uh, her husband hardly spoke English. She was Italian. He hardly spoke French. He didn't know what was going on. And I think he felt like, why the hell should I do this? Now, why should I be doing I can bring back anyone's ashes. And so he said that he threw the ashes over the side of the ship and filled the urn with some other ashes. Now, these other ashes got lost twice on the journey back from New York to Taos. On two occasions, they were left um, on station station waiting rooms. <laughs> and so when they finally, finally got to Taos, heaven knows what was in there. But uh, Mabel Dodge Luhan said, we simply cannot you know, put Lawrence's ashes in that public lavatory. We have to scatter them to the winds. That's what he'd like. And Frida said he's going in the Isis temple. And so she then got her husband to stir the ashes into the cement (laughs) and then made an altar stone to the temple. But then what other people have told me who were in Taos and whose families have lived in Taos for years, they said, no, what happened was that Mabel and Frida and Dorothy Brett, one of Lawrence's disciples, sat down and ate them. 
stirred them into the food and ate them, which, of course, I think Lawrence would have loved because he'd have gone back into their bodies. He always wanted to be in the body of a woman. But not if there's a he collection would. of random fag butts that you know, Frida's yeah, new husband they had probably were the eating the, the cigarette ash of Winston's. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it was probably that. <laughs> I mean, it's funny we talk about, you know, was Lawrence a comic? Was Lawrence funny? Think Well, his life was essentially comic. He wrote, he wrote about it as a tragedy, but his life was a divine comedy. I mean, everything was funny. <laughs> Francis Wilson, <laughs> thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>